we, uh, as you find your place there in 1 Corinthians, I also want to let you know that we're going to uh, spend the first few minutes in Joshua chapter 7. You don't have to necessarily turn there if you don't want, but uh, we're going to start in Joshua 7, and then we'll find our place to, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And while you're finding your place there, I just want to um, uh, thank Anna for making uh, those announcements uh, about some of the things coming up. So I, I want to make sure that you, uh, you check out that Christmas tree out there and ways that you might be able to bless others. And then I also just want to uh, um, add to her announcement about nominations for deacons. Uh, I just want to add that you don't have to be, uh, uh, for the deacon team, a handyman or necessarily uh, a handy woman that's someone that can fix a lot of things, but we also have other areas of servant opportunities that could use some oversight or some help. So if God's leading you in that way, even if you're not a, a great with tools or fixing things or building things, that's not a prerequisite. Uh, the heart of a servant is, and so we want to just encourage you to prayerfully consider that. I also want to just make mention, if you happen to be here for the first time, uh, if you haven't checked out our Welcome Center, make sure you stop in there on the way out. Uh, we have a free gift we'd like to get to you and, and uh, just find out how we can serve you or uh, answer questions about Brown Corners. We're glad you're here worshiping with us. One of the difficulties about preaching through books of the Bible, it's, it's, a, it's a difficulty as a pastor, but also uh, it helps kind of keep us honest. Because one of the temptations pastors face is to preach about uh, texts that maybe we're passionate about or topics that are, are really near and dear to our heart um, and, and maybe even more comfortable to talk about. And when you get into 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there are some uncomfortable things to talk about that maybe would otherwise be tempted to skirt around as a pastor, but uh, the, preaching verse by verse through 1 Corinthians has reminded us the importance of not ignoring a passage like this. And I just want to mention that if you have uh, kids with you today, this does get into the topic of sexual immorality, and I just want to mention that. We're not going to go into lots of uh, details or anything, but just wanted to... Uh, make sure that I mention that at the outset. The title of this message today is called Sin in the Camp. Sin in the Camp. And as I was thinking about this passage, it took me back to Joshua chapter 7. Do you remember Joshua, the great leader of Israel, a man who struggled with courage and boldness? But as, as Moses died and God raised up Joshua to take his place, they were getting ready to go into the promised land. And Joshua brought them in, and God was going to use Joshua as the great military leader to wipe out the Canaanites so that the Israelites could have the land God promised. The first battle went well. It was the Battle of Jericho, right? And we've, we've, many of us have heard that story growing up and heard the, the Bible stories. Maybe if you're old enough, you saw the flannel graphs and the walls coming down. Uh, but one of the things that Joshua told the people is that they were not allowed to take any of the spoil. He said everything had been devoted for destruction. He wanted the people to understand that... The, that the, the people of Jericho had been so wicked and so rebellious and so evil that everything had to be completely destroyed. And so as the walls came down, as the people began to go on, they went on to their next battle. And God had promised that he would allow them to, the, the Israelites to just sweep through and wipe everybody out. Well, what happened at the next battle? They lost. And Joshua couldn't believe it, and he was crying out before God. He said, you promised that you would take everybody. He promised this would just be smooth sailing. And God said, God says to him, get up off the ground, quit your whining. If you read the passage, it reads very much like that. He said, listen, somebody has sinned. And all of a sudden, he had Joshua's attention. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, it, it uh, reads like this. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. 
For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people Israel. Now, Joshua 7 could be an incredible study all on its own. But as you think about that very statement in chapter 7, verse 1, it shocks us a little bit. Because we see a man, Achan, who, it says he broke faith with regard to some of the devoted things, but the Lord's anger burned against all Israel. I don't know about you, but that leaves me scratching my head a little bit. I mean, we're such an individualistic culture, we don't have any idea of what it, what it like this just doesn't, this seems foreign to us, that the whole group should be in trouble because of one guy's sin. Well, what happened is that Joshua began looking to the Lord as to where to, who to talk to, who, who to, where's this found? And God leads him to Achan's tent. A few verses in, Joshua comes to Achan and says, what's going on? Tell me what you've done. And Achan says in verse 20, truly I have sinned against the Lord the God of Israel, and this is what I did. I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. That was a little over three pounds. And I coveted them, and I took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside the tent with the silver underneath. One man's sin, and seemingly so innocent, he just took some money from people who had been wiped out and destroyed. It was, it was plunder. It was spoil. And yet, because of this one man's sin, it brought judgment upon the whole people. And so, what did God deal with that? How did God deal with that? What did he do? Verse 25 is Joshua's reply. Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Previous verses tell us that the whole family was recipients of that punishment. There was sin in the camp. And if you read that story, I don't care whether you've been a Christian 50 years, I don't care whether you're the greatest theologian that's ever preached or taught or written, that, that story can't help but bother you a little bit. That first of all, such a seemingly small thing would require such a severe punishment. And then secondly, that others were impacted in such a profound way because of one man's sin. I would put forth that the reason that bothers us so much, and it bothers me, is because we don't fully grasp the seriousness of sin 
before a holy God. I know I don't. When we begin to understand the depth of one act of disobedience, and we hold it against the the perfect holiness of God, if we could see as God sees, we would stand aghast at that sin. We would be troubled down in the very depths of our souls. We would begin to understand why it affects the whole group. When we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we can understand maybe a little bit better why Paul was so passionate in his rebuke and exhortation to the Corinthians to deal with sin in their midst. To stop ignoring it, to stop skirting around the issue, and get after that sin. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? As we walk through this passage today, there are just a couple of things, if you're taking notes, um, that I just want to outline. The first one uh, is the problems that we see. And this is an outline that I encountered in my study, and I thought the, uh, the alliteration was something far better than I could come up with. So, um, Paul begins with calling out and addressing the issue. R- remember now, he's He's, he's just gotten done with a passage where he's talking about uh, rebuking them as a father, disciplining them. And he says, how do, you want, how do you want me to come? Do you want me to come in that spirit of gentleness or do you want me to come with a rod? And here's why Paul was so fired up. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of the kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. The problem here, the first problem really, there's multiple problems, but the first problem was that the uh, Corinthians were... Uh, that, that there, was, there was sexual sin being tolerated. The Greek word there is the Greek word pornea, where we get pornography from. It's a really a, a wide-range word that it refers to all kinds of sexual sin, and the context kind of de- helps determine what the author is getting at or its, its usage. And so here in this context, he says that there's a man who has his father's wife. Now, he would have, if it was his his biological mom, he would have said mom. So most every commentator agrees that this is probably uh, the stepmom. That this, ma- this man is having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And the, the, Paul like reads this and he's like, are you kidding me? He says this kind of thing is not even tolerated among the unbelieving pagans. And if you, I don't know if you remember back when we started this series, we talked a little bit about the, how sexualized the Corinthian culture was. They tolerated a lot. They were okay with a lot of things. They had temple prostitutes, and there were all kinds of uh, various uh, sexual activity that was okay. But this one, even among the unbelievers there, they said, no, no, this is not okay. Uh, there's there's a, uh, 
Uh, I read that in Roman society, though some forms of extramarital sexual relationships were not universally frowned upon, such as fornication, adultery, and prostitution, a relationship between a man and his stepmother was considered incestuous. It was treated with a sense of outrage and disgust, punishable by deportation to a remote island. It was that seriously uh, rejected by the unbelievers. And he said, you guys are believers and you're tolerating it. And so the first problem was the man's sin. And, and the reason I think that he doesn't say anything about the woman's sin, because I, I, I get the feeling that she probably wasn't a part of the church. She probably wasn't a believer. But this man here was a part of the church. He was a believer, and that's why he gets spoken to. But the other problem was that the Corinthians were just fine with it. Did you see verse 2? He says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Now, some commentators think that that arrogance was that they were, they were proud, that they were so accepting, and that they were just so uh, affirming of these other relationships. That's very possible. But more likely, you see, Paul's already rebuked them for their arrogance, for being proud people. And I think probably what Paul is saying is like, listen, you have this problem of pride. Not only is it sinful, but it doesn't make sense because you're living in this outrageous way. How can you be proud? How could you even struggle with being arrogant? Because you're tolerating something so wicked, something this should be embarrassing to you. He said, you should be, rather than arrogant, you should be on your face weeping. And that should be our response when God brings sin to bear in our life, when he points it out in our hearts. Not to excuse, not to rationalize, not to push it away, not to blame it on other people, but to fall on our faces and weep. Whether we see it in our own heart or among our own church body, that should be our response. Not toleration, not excusing, not accepting. We don't know why they were okay with this. Perhaps this man uh, was an intimidating person. Perhaps he was a wealthy benefactor, and they were afraid of chasing him away or offending him. So often that's the case, right? There are some people that we would speak up to, that we would confront, but then there are others, well, I don't want to offend that person. They're a big giver. They have a lot of connections. That temptation is real, let me tell you. But as believers, we can't, we can't pick and choose on when we're going to deal with sin and when we're not. We need to be willing to confront people over sin. There's a church. We need to be able to deal with sin no matter who it is and not be intimidated or not talk ourselves out of such a thing. They weren't the only ones who struggled in this way. When John wrote to the church in Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, he says this. He says, I know your works your love and faith and service and patient endurance that your latter works exceed the first. He commended them. And he said, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, is, is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. See, passages like this 
Remind, oh, and, and, and he finishes with, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. It's passages like this and the one before us in 1 Corinthians that reminds us of the great seriousness of our sin. Just like in the times of Joshua, there are some sins in our life that can seem so small, so insignificant, that we want to push aside or rationalize or excuse. God wants us to know whether we consider it a, a small sin, a little white lie, or whether it's something as blatantly obvious as incest, <laughs> that all of that be held up before the nature of a holy God and we tremble at our wrongdoing. just want to say, you know, this is a culture where all kinds of sexual sin has become accepted, and I'm not talking about the Corinthian culture, I'm talking about our culture. And, and we can, even as a church, become okay with certain things. God does not want us to be okay with any sin, but particularly excusing sexual sin when it comes to pornography, when it comes to unchecked lust in our hearts. God longs for us to turn to him in repentance. As we're going to see in this, throughout this chapter, God longs to give grace and forgiveness to those who come and humbly bring this before God. He's not out there to... to uh, you see, in the Old Testament, that was the, res the response. We saw what happened to Achan and his family. Stoning and burning. We're on the other side of the cross. And while sin is just as every bit as serious as it was in Achan's day, as it was in Joshua's day, we have the cross. And I don't care what kind of sin we're talking about, sexual sin or otherwise, there is forgiveness for those who truly come in humble repentance. As a church, we can't be okay with this. We can't change our, our, our morals, our position on these things. So often now, I mean, listen, I'm just going to say it clearly. Like, if, if, like God, God created sex, and he designed it for a marriage between a man and a woman, and for that, that sexual relationship to stay within that marriage. If you're in a sexual relationship with somebody outside of that marriage bond, you're in sin. God's calling you to repent. But know this, that there is forgiveness, and there's freedom from that sin. And that's what was... That's what Paul longed for the Corinthians to get. But since this man wasn't repentant, since this man didn't have a repentant heart, we go secondly then to the punishment. The punishment. The, the passage goes on to say, uh, partway through verse 2, he says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now this sounds really, really harsh. We have to understand, this sin has gone on, and has gone on unchecked and undealt with. 
If we had time, we'd go look at Matthew chapter 18, and in there, Jesus gives us some steps as to how to work through sin. You see, ideally, the church disciplines process starts long before it gets to where we're at in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is not a case study for exactly on how church discipline is supposed to be done. This is the end stages for someone who is not repentant. Matthew 18 tells us that we, it starts off when you initially see something by having a conversation with that person that God has pointed out, and, and it's usually a one-on-one conversation. And if that person digs their heels in and refuses to repent, the passage tells us to take a couple others. And then, and then if it, it still is not dealt with, still is not resolved, then you get the church leadership involved. And then if it's still not the case, then that's where we're at in chapter 5. He says, bring it before the whole church. Verse 4 says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit's present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you're to deliver this man over. That's where we're at the end stages of church discipline here. Chapter 5 is not for somebody who comes to you and says, hey, listen, I'm struggling this week uh, with, with my anger. Or I looked at pornography this week, and all of a sudden they're out on the streets. Chapter 5 is for that person who is dug in and is living in sin and has refused the, 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 the beckonings and the, the challenges and the rebukes and the conf- uh, confrontations of fellow believers, and they are continuing to persist in that sin. In this case, Paul says, deliver this man over to Satan. What in the world does that mean? He uses a similar term with Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 with regards to some false teachers that had, had crept into the church there. And Paul said, hand him over to Satan, get him out. What is he talking about there? Well, one commentator, I think, puts it well. He says, to hand the man over to Satan was to turn him back out into Satan's sphere, outside of the edifying and caring environment of the church where God is at work. All right, so the, 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 the New Testament paints such an important picture of the local assembly, the local church, that there is a, a caring, protective sphere that should exist within the local church that helps, helps us uh, in many ways, but one of those ways should be corrective, should be help, helping keep us on the straight and narrow. That's why it's heartbreaking to me when I find somebody who's walking away from the Lord. And so often, one of the things that went early on in that process is a disconnectedness from the body of Christ. One of the ministries that we're supposed to have with one another is that as we stay connected, there should be people who are lovingly involved in our lives and can spot that sin and bring correction. But so oftentimes, when that sin uh, in, in my experience, when that person has, has walked away from the faith or walked away from the church, they have separated themselves from that, that grace of God called the body of Christ. But this man here had remained connected and somehow unchecked, his sin undealt with. And so Paul says, I want you to take this man away from that protective, nurturing circle of the body of Christ and to put him outside Notice, notice that the purpose was not punitive. It was corrective. Hear what he says. Um, Verse 5, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. I don't think that's talking about killing him or seeing him die. I think destruction of his flesh means uh, uh, rendering um, or destroying that sinful nature that, that has gotten such a hold on his heart. Put him out for the destruction of his flesh so that he may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see, one of the reasons for church discipline is to jolt somebody back into the reality of how serious 
their sin is and how awful it is to stand outside of the local assembly of Christ. One of God's means of waking us up, one of the last-dished efforts, is to jolt us through being removed from that fellowship. And it is a very, very difficult thing to do. If you've ever been a part of that process, it is heart-wrenching. It should never be a, a, a time of joy for God's people to say, See ya! Pack your bags! This is a heartbreaking process because you're watching a brother or a sister have to be set aside. That God willing will be enough to jolt them back to reality that they might, as he says, have their souls saved on the day of the Lord. If you, just to give you a little glimpse at the end of the story, if you go to 2 Corinthians, it actually appears like, in this case, it, it worked. And the man was repentant. And then Paul had to rebuke the Corinthians because they were still being too tough on him and they wouldn't let him back in. <laughs> Paul can't win with these guys. But you know the other reason that Paul lists here is as to the, the reason for uh, disciplining the church or disciplining this man. It wasn't just for the salvation of his souls, but it was also for the purity of the church. And so uh, number three here, we get a picture. Paul comes back and once again uses another metaphor. He used the same metaphor in Galatians chapter 5, 9 to talk about um, leaven and bread. Paul's, Paul's pulling from all kinds of different uh, pictures here and all kinds of different walks of life so far in this book. And he comes now to the kitchen to pull a picture out that shows us uh, the importance of not only for this man's soul, but the importance of dealing with sin for the body. He says, cleanse out, this is verse uh, 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now there's some Old Testament imagery here that we don't have time to fully get into. But basically, when, uh, if you had some leftover leaven that was not good, it could spoil the new lump when you got ready to go in and, and make, uh, make your next batch of bread. Um, it, one of the things I read that, uh, is that uh, when added to the next batch, this old leaven made, or leaven made the bread rise. It carried with it the slight risk of infection, especially if the process was left to go on uh, indefinitely without starting afresh with a completely new batch. And so God even actually had that built into a festival uh, with the Israelites to let them know how important this picture was. Basically, what Paul is communicating here is that all you have to do is let in just a little bit. A little bit of sin, unchecked, affects the whole body. Why was God so serious with Achan? Why did the whole nation come under its effect in punishment? Because God was instilling that principle that he wants us to grab a hold of even yet today, all these many years later. That just a little bit of sin in the body of Christ, just a little bit of okayness with, say, worldliness or sexual immorality or covetousness or envy or pride or you name it. Just being okay with a little bit of it, it, it can spread like a cancer. We all know that even something is an infected sliver, how that can affect 
everything. It could be such a small sliver in your finger, but that throbbing becomes so annoying that it occupies your attention. It's it's more painful than such a little thing should be. Paul uses the picture of a little leaven, of such a small amount it takes to affect the whole lump of dough, to remind us that acceptance of just a little bit of sin among God's people can have devastating consequences. How about you this morning? Has your heart been okay with accepting a little bit of sin in your life? Have you been okay with ignoring, well, I'm doing so well over here. This is just, this is not that big of a deal. My temper, I mean, yeah, it gets the best of me, but I mean, I've been reading my Bible every day and sharing my faith with this coworker. Sure, I looked at, look at some pornography at night when everybody's asleep, but you know, I'm not actually acting. I'm not, I'm not cheating on my spouse. God wants us to know that just a little bit affects the whole. Whether we're talking about us as individuals or in this particular context, the body of Christ. May we not be okay with sin. And then finally is the principle, the principle behind it all. I wish we had more time to talk about this section here because there's a lot we could say. Verse 9 says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So Paul wrote a previous letter. We've already talked about that, that, you know, for whatever reason, God has chosen that that not be saved and preserved in the canon of his word. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world. So they took, they read that first letter and they got Paul wrong. Uh, They're like, you mean we're not supposed to associate with anybody who's doing anything naughty? Like, what are you talking about, Paul? And Paul's like, no, 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 you didn't get me right. He says, I'm not talking about those who are out in the world, or he says, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since that would mean you'd need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, to not even eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those on the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Do you hear what Paul's saying? Paul says, I'm telling you that if this person is in your midst and and he's gone through this process and he's not repentant, he's not willing to, to change his ways, you're not supposed to associate with them anymore. Now, th- this has caused a lot of... Uh, um, difficulties for the church down through the history, uh, down through history. The first reason it's caused difficulties is because we've got it mixed up. We've, we've taken, and traditionally, I'm not just saying us as Americans here, but this has just been a, a battle we, the church has always wrestled with, is we've got it flipped around, where we become okay with hanging out with those who are disobedient, who are supposedly Christians, and we try to stay away from the big bad world, all the people that are, are in our world, co-workers who use some rough language, or uh, other unbelieving neighbor who, who maybe drinks too much. And so we, we stay away, we, we, we sequester ourselves. And Paul says, that's not what I mean. I'm not talking about getting away from the world. You can't get out of the world. God wants us out in the world, being a light, not engaging in their sinful activities with them. And it requires wisdom. There are times when maybe we need to step away from that relationship. But by and large, we're called to be out there. So first of all, the first problem here is that the church has got this flip-flop. 
We're okay with hanging out with the believers who are in sin, and we're not, unwi- we're not willing to hang out with unbelievers who that's all they know how to do is sin. And so God says, listen, I want you to get this right here. We're still in the world. We're called to be a light. But it comes to, when it comes to Christians who are unrepentant, that so-called brother, he says, who is guilty of these things, that's where we need to think about how we're spending our time with them. I think it's important to note that he says, um, he, he says uh, to not even eat with such a one. We have to remember that the meal there at that time um, meant so much more. Um, he's, he's saying, he, I, I don't think he's saying uh, you can't have a conversation with that person. Otherwise, how would you continue to try to minister to them or call them back? But he's talking about a very different meal here. In the early church, Christians would typically gather in homes, not in church facilities, to worship and to celebrate the Lord's table. This writer says, because this was the case, the supper wasn't just a sliver of bread and a shot of wine or grape juice. It was a supper, a full-blown meal. And Paul is saying that you can't do this anymore with this unrepentant person. Why? The purpose of the supper was to wake the spiritually sleepy person from his numbness to his wrong, give him grace to overcome it, and then restore him to the community at large. But folks under discipline are, by definition, those who have dug their heels into the ground, and they're saying, I don't want a warning. I don't want grace. I don't care about how my actions affect others. For someone like that, not only has the supper ceased to do its work in them, but it's also ceased to be grace for them. Instead, it's a threat. Over and over again, we see in the scriptures that when a person gets near to God, things get dangerous. But get near him with a spirit like that, and it's fatal. Discipline is meant to protect. There's grace in it. What God wanted them to understand was for us to continue to live with these people who have been put out from the church like nothing's wrong, nothing's happened, is bringing further condemnation on them. And so, in those situations, it does require a lot of wisdom. But Paul is saying, let's not live like nothing happened here. This man is supposed to be put out And I want you, by and large, to not spend time with them. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A passage like this is hard. It's hard for us to read. It's hard for us to think about the implications. We must, if we're to take sin seriously, if we're to remember the holiness of our God, and that that our sin was so devastating, so awful, that it meant the Son of God going to the cross in order to deal with it, we must be sobered about the reality of sin. But in a healthy spiritual community, you'll rarely see it get to that stage, that final stage of handing someone over to Satan or putting them out of the fellowship. Why? Because all along, God's people are walking beside them. And as, and as we start to veer off, as we start to take a step in the wrong dire- direction, a godly brother or sister should be there to put their arm around us and say, hey, that's not the way you want to go. So that we don't even have a chance to get way off the rails. If we're doing what God wants us to do and we're living like a community of believers that God has called us to be, we're there. We're side by side with each other in love, correcting each other before it becomes, before it This little scratch turns into a a gangrenous wound. That's the picture in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
I think it's just so important that we ask ourselves every day, am I the kind of person who's teachable and humble? If somebody came to me today with a concern about my walk, with a concern about my heart, my love for Jesus, the way I'm treating my family, would I receive that with thankfulness? Would I receive that as a gift of God's grace, knowing that he's using that brother or sister in my life to bring me back to him, to keep me from veering too far out of the way? Or would I bristle? Would my pride flare up? Would I dig my heels in, tell him to buzz off? How is it that I respond when I'm corrected? You see, this, this passage, even though it's difficult to hear, it really is all about grace. It's all about grace. The word is never mentioned in the text, but it, the, the strands of grace run through chapter 5. God longs to see this man who is involved in gross sexual sin come back and repent, and be shaken to his very core over the wickedness of his sin. And he longs for the people to understand that they need to be pure. They need to, to be walking with God as one and not being okay with sin. It's all God's grace for this man and for the body so that we might live pure and holy lives. I want to remind you this morning, if God's Spirit is convicting you of something that maybe it's something outrageous, maybe it's something, some, some, some serious sexual sin that you've allowed in your life. Maybe it's something that you've been thinking about is, is just small, is insignificant, and God's Spirit, as we've been talking, has just been prodding you in that, this attitude or this thought or this spirit that you've, you've had. And he's saying, listen, this is sin, and it will, it will only, only grow if you don't deal with it. If that's the case this morning, I want you to remember that because we live on this side of the cross, we're not taking anybody out front and having a, a stoning this morning. By God's grace and glory to God, <laughs> that, that, that doesn't happen anymore. Do you know why? Because Jesus took our stoning for us. Jesus took upon himself every awful thing that we've done, whether we realized it was awful or not. He bore our sin in his own body on the tree, his word tells us. God has come to set us free. This morning, I pray that you will cast your sin upon the one who longs to forgive it, who has the power to forgive it because of what he's done upon the cross, and that you'll walk in that newness. And one last encouragement. If you've been wrestling with sin in secret, Find somebody that you can talk to, to walk alongside of you in that. We are never meant to live the Christian life alone. You've heard me say that. And God's grace is to use the body of Christ to help us walk with him. May it not be said of us that there's sin in the camp. May we long to be people who seek and receive that forgiveness and walk in that freedom of forgiveness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, May your word speak to us today. May your spirit bring these truths alive to our hearts. This is a difficult passage, partly because we don't like talking about sin. We certainly don't like talking about our own sin. 
God, this morning, if your spirit is convicting us of something, Lord, may our, may our hearts be receptive. May we not set it aside. May we not put up walls. May we not excuse it or blame shift, but may we fall on our knees like the Corinthians should have and mourn and be broken over our sin and then turn to you in repentance, genuine heartfelt repentance and receive that forgiveness that you've so freely promised in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray that as a body we would grow closer together and, and grab a hold of this idea that not, not in a spirit of judgmental Phariseeism where we're looking for specks when we have a log in our own eye. It's a different thing altogether. But God, may our spirit be in love and grace to compassionately call our brothers and sisters to faithfulness and to repentance. May we be willing to say the hard things. May we be willing to hear the hard things and remove the leaven from our midst so that, God, we can be a faithful witness here in our community, in our county, and around the world for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be all the glory and honor and praise this morning. In his precious name we pray. Amen. God bless.